Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the Tree Church Bible Study. We are picking up again in Revelation. We're going to finish off Revelation 13 today, and we're just going to be uh, finishing off the section where we're looking at the the different beasts of, of John's Revelation. So um, I just kind of want to get get into it today, uh, say a prayer real quick, and then we'll get going, and then, um, and then hopefully we'll walk out of this section having a little bit better understanding exactly what John was trying to communicate to the churches that he was writing to. We always have to remember, John's heart is for his churches. John wants them to remain faithful to Jesus, despite the persecutions, despite all the different temptations going on around him. And so that's John's heart. He, he wants them to be faithful witnesses to Jesus, no matter what comes their way. So um, just always keep that in mind as we're reading throughout the book of Revelation, with all the mystery and with all the, the symbolism and all the different things going on, John wants his churches to remain faithful and to be able to identify the temptations and the things that will pull him away from it. So, all right. So let us uh, say a prayer, and then we're going to get into our Bible study for today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this day. Uh, I pray that you would just speak through us. God, I, I pray that you would just help me to articulate um, in clear ways, Lord God, the, the truths that, that I, I believe that you're trying to say to us through, uh, through, this chap- through this, these verses in this chapter 13. God, I pray as we look at uh, one of the most iconic pieces of Revelation today, I pray that your Spirit would lead us, that you would guide us, and that you would give us wisdom in how to read and interpret what you're saying here. God, um, it's a mysterious book, and we, we want to honor you in it, and we want to be uh, more faithful believers and more faithful followers because of it. And so we give this time to you, and it's in your precious name. Amen. All right, getting started with chapter 13, verse 11. And then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all. And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Also, it causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. In some translations, it actually puts the number 666 there, but the the number is 666. So, before we start to break that down, just want to remind you of all of the things that we talked about last week when we started this chapter. I want us to remember that John has first century historical illusions in mind as he's writing this. His churches would know of the people that he's talking about, or the places, or the the systems or the, the, the governmental uh, authorities, and, and, and they know who John is talking about. So he has someone in mind. That said, 
he wants the readers to recognize their contextual beasts. So what are the ways uh, and the things that stand over and opposed to God and to, to God's ways? He wants us to recognize those things, not so that we can figure out a once and for all Antichrist, which, by the way, the, the term Antichrist is not in Revelation at all, though the idea is there. Um, the, the term's not there. Not so that we can uh, read the signs and choose who is going to be the Antichrist, but to recognize those systems, those institutions, those powers, the, the people or, or, or empires that are in our context. The, the, the institutions that promote uh, evil at the expense of luxury, the, the, that promote um, destruction at the expense of other people. Uh, so, and, and I would love to sit here and, and name names, but I'm not going to do that here because um, it, it, John has left it for us to kind of process through what that looks like. And so um, that is something for each of us to have conversations about. It's something for each of us to have, um, to have thoughts about and to pray through and allow the Spirit to lead us. And, and, and in those places where we recognize evil, for us to, to think hard on that, to pray hard on that, and to figure out what is our step and what is our response, what is the faithful thing to do um, in, in light of those things. So just for instance, we're going to be looking at economic systems today. John talks about that a lot and how that plays into, plays into it and, and where, um, where the temptation is to compromise at times for our economic good. Um, and so that, that's going to be part of it. So when I say institution systems, think like what are the things that we kind of compromise on so that we can have a nice comfortable life? Um, are there things that are, are there evil things done in the name of good? And, and so um, thinking about those things are kind of what John is trying to get us to wrap our minds around. All right. First thing we need to know, though, as we get into uh, today's uh, kind of topic, and this really started with the early part with, with the picture of the dragon and then the first beast. But John is setting up a parody and, and a parody is simply a fake version of something real. It's, it's so it, it gives the appearance of something, but it's really the opposite, or it's really just kind of faking it in a way. So um, I talked, uh, I, think it, I think it was in the Romans Bible study one time, about, um, about posers. I was big into the skate scene, and when I was skateboarding, if you, if you dress like a skateboarder, but you didn't actually ride a skateboard, that is someone who was a poser, and, and we would say that that is a parody of a skateboarder. So um, it's something that has the appearance of the real thing, but not really the real thing. Well, the dragon and the beast, beast one and beast two that we're going to look at today, are really a parody of God. They give the illusion of power. They give the illusion of, of, of authority. They give the illusion of, of even something positive, and yet... And it draws people's worship, and yet it's not truly God. For John, there's only one person worthy of worship, and that is God alone and the Lamb. And, and so everything that pulls authority, or pulls the attention away of human beings away from, uh, from God and from the Lamb, and we're going to see that more in, in chapter 14, is, is a parody of, of God. And so John is setting up these beasts as, as parodies. So they have in a lot of ways, the appearance of, of God but in, in the Lamb, but they aren't actually the Lamb. And we're going to see how that really deceives the churches. 
as we look at this. And this is key to understanding that, that, that John is trying to set up this, uh, this idea that, that these beasts um, try, to, try to deceive and try to trick people into believing that what they're doing is good and, and stand in actual opposition to God. Um, a lot of times, and, and I've kind of already alluded to this, I, I must have got ahead of myself here, but this is just, a, it, it's a way of justifying doing evil for a good reason. So um, this, I, I'm trying to think of really good examples here to kind of share with you about that, but um, none of them are coming to my mind right now. But it's just this idea that, that something is perceived to be good, and yet, it's it's really uh, it's really not, and so it, it's an evil that we justify to be good. So b- let's take a look at beast number two, and then we'll we'll start to kind of unpack it a little bit more. Beast number two parodies the lamb in the spirit. Now this is not a one for one. So if the dragon represents Satan, which is the parody of God. Um, the beast number one is is the Roman Empire, and really, it's it's empire in general. Beast number two uh, is is harder to identify, in that really John maybe doesn't even necessarily want us to identify them in um, as a specific person. Uh, for John, the the local govern uh, the local governments and the local uh, people who were setting up the imperial worship throughout the empire would have been uh, very identifiable in this way. They, they did a lot of things that pushed worship towards the empire. They helped set up the uh, 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 worship of Caesar. They helped build temples. They helped promote, and, and they did all of this for their own renown to get their own stature built up and to, um, and to really get honor from those around them. So, and, and that is huge in this culture, honor and shame. And so, more than even being rich, it was important to be well known and to, to be well liked in the Roman Empire in a Roman uh, society. And so, when they would have built temples for, when they would have built temples for the emperor, this would have been something that would have gotten them fame and renown and and gotten them noticed by the emperor. So, you know, just something to keep in mind that that's kind of the background behind Beast Two. And yet again, the. The mystery of it is, in the, is that, that it's not supposed to be identified just with just one specific thing. But what we see is that it looks like the Lamb and it looks like the Spirit. It functions in a lot of different ways that the Lamb and the Spirit did. Beast number two, he carries the authority of the beast. He's essentially an extension of beast number one. He, he has the power to do signs and wonders. And so he has the power to bring down fire. And, and, and think about it. What is the image um, that, that was, uh, what is the image that was kind of known, uh, at Pentecost for the coming of the Holy Spirit? Wasn't it not fire coming down and, and tongues of fire resting on the disciples? So you get this image that, that it kind of has the power to do very similar things to what the Holy Spirit is doing. This beast is convincing everyone around him that the first beast with the wound is actually alive. And, and, and this is the story, we talked about it a little bit before, how uh, this was a story going around about Nero and how uh, he had killed himself, stabbed himself in the neck, um, and, and uh, graphic, I know, <laughs> it's gross, but um, that he actually really didn't die, and, then, and so he was alive and well, and that he was coming back to overtake the Roman Empire once again. So there's this image 
of resurrection. This beast that was dead is now alive again. And so there's this, this, there's this continual parody of, of what the Lamb has accomplished and what the Spirit does. And, and what the beast is trying to do is compel people to compromise. This is both a warning to the church and, and a reality of those who are not uh, seeking God and not worshiping God can very easily and quickly be tricked and duped and really even just kind of lulled into uh, worshiping the beast and worshiping uh, the Roman Empire and worshiping the emperors. And, and wor- because it was such a cultural norm that, that, that honestly, a lot of them wouldn't even have thought that it was a compromise of anything. But John sets this up as a warning to say, listen, if you bite into the cultural norm here, you will be compromising your faith. And this is what the beast wants to do. It wants to compel others to, to not to be faithful to God, not to be faithful to the Lamb, but to be faithful to the Roman Empire, to be faithful to, uh, to the dragon, to Satan. And so that is the, the whole goal of the beast is, is to of, of this beast number two is to convince people to follow not just or to, to not follow God and to not worship God but to turn their worship towards the culture towards the empire and towards these other uh, the, these other things pretty much just anything standing over and against God and then there is uh, the, we see that the the people who compromise, they're marked with uh, the mark of the beast. And this is where we really get into some of the most popular and most well-known parts of Revelation. And so um, we're going to see that in Revelation 14, God marks his people as well, that, that they, are, they are sealed with the mark of, the, mark of God. And so their, the names of God is written on the forehead of believers. And so there's this idea idea of, of, of Mark identifying um, whether you belong to the beast or whether you belong to God. And, and so for those that compromise, they are marked with the beast. And the mark of the beast, again, is a parody. Um, it, just always keep that in mind. But the mark was, was going to be put on the right hand or the forehead. And again, this is just a way of being identified as either a follower of God or a follower of the beast, as what we see here in, thir- in uh, chapter 13. And really, there's a lot of, I, I want to take a second and kind of address kind of the other thoughts and theories about the mark of the beast. There's, there's kind of a popular notion going around right now that the mark is going to be something that is, um, that people are tricked into. Uh, the reality is, John very much sees it as a choice. It's not something that people are going to, though there is a deception and there is kind of a, there, there's kind of some, um, it's more of a, a slow fade to making the choice to identify with the beast. For John, it's always about the choice. Nobody is given the mark of the beast who does not choose to take the mark of the beast. And so, um, and so it's not like they're going to slip, and, and this is kind of a popular conspiracy theory th- these days, that the mark of the beast is going to be slipped into a shot that we get, um, or th- that if we, if we choose to take a, a vaccine, I realize that's a popular thing, and I don't believe that, um, and I don't believe that's what John was referring to, but 
the, 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 it's more so that we are cognizant of this kind of slow fade to, of compromise, slow fade away from Christ, and, and we, we choose for whatever reason that we justify to, to compromise our faith and to, and to be marked by the beast. This involves economic trade. This is something that it makes clear. Now, the Roman Empire was just as much a money machine as it was a military machine. And so it was important to know that people's livelihoods, the way that people ate, their economic uh, sustenance was all really tied to the culture. And so, and especially if you were in a trade. So say you were a member of the Masons Guild. If you were a member of the Masons Guild, that meant that you went oftentimes to the temple to sacrifice to the God who was uh, where you would go and have your Mason Union meetings. And so these union meetings would take place in the temple, and during that time you would do a worship service to that God who was your patron, God of the Masons. And so if you didn't do that, oftentimes what would happen is you would stop getting jobs you would not be able to feed your family. And so you can see kind of how the pressure to kind of give in to these different things, to give in to, um, to, give in to idol worship was, was prevalent for the society. Oftentimes people would be rejected because they would not sacrifice to the idols. Christians were often considered pagan because they, they, that something bad would happen to the nation or to that city, and then the Christians would be blamed because they did not believe in the gods and they did not sacrifice to the gods. And so they would be rejected and they would be cast out of society because they chose not to partake in the worship of the gods. And so all of this cultural and economic um, pressure is really being put on to take on this mark of the beast. And, and so John is setting up this idea that there's a lot of tension here that comes with being a faithful witness and that there will be those that come and try to convince you to justify giving in in these places of temptation. So, and, and I've kind of already iterated this, but to take the mark was to compromise the faithful witness that John was calling his churches to. He didn't want them to give in to worship and to give in to these these modes of expressing um, loyalty to the emperor, loyalty to the empire. He wanted them to be expressly about loyalty to Jesus alone. This was both blatant and deceptive. This is kind of what I was talking about a little bit earlier. There, there were blatant ways in which this happened, and it was easy to recognize the, the idol worship that they were being asked to partake in. At times, it was not easy. And so, or it was not so much that it was deceptive, but it was, there was so much pressure around that area, especially like the area of economics. Imagine not being able to feed your children because you can't get work because you choose not to sacrifice the idols. This is where trust in God, it really became important. And this is where the patrons, the, 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 uh, the richer people in the church would come along and they would take people, take people into their homes and they would care for them, and they would provide food for them, and they would pro provide house payments and all of the different things that these people needed so that they did not have to compromise their faith. So this was just one of the ways that they had to combat this compromise. So the mark of the beast is simply the, the mark that's taken 
when we choose to give in to idol worship and when we choose to give in to um, when we choose to give in to compromising our faith and doing the right thing um, and compromising our faithful witness to Jesus, whether that be for our own comfort, for our own uh, economic advantage, or whether that be for our own, um, uh, whether that be for, uh, I had another example, in my, it slipped my mind, but, but you get the picture. And so that, that is what the mark of the beast is. And, and we get a number that's associated with the mark of the beast, and I'm going to talk about that here in a second. But I, I want us to, to to listen to this and, and and take it in deep. We choose to take on the mark of the beast when we compromise our faith. It, it's not a barcode on my on our hand or a barcode on our forehead. It's not these different theories and thoughts. Anytime we compromise our faith. We are choosing to walk not in step with Christ, but we're choosing to walk in step with the things that stand, the powers that stand over and against Christ. And so what we need to be aware of and what we need to be more purposed about and more diligent about is recognizing those places in our lives where we compromise. All right, sorry, I'll get off my soapbox here and move on to the next portion. The number 666 is probably one of the most renowned uh, omens, kind of the most renowned kind of, because of this passage, one of the most renowned kind of bad, bad luck charms that, that, that I guess you could say, because it, it is the number of the beast. It is the number of the mark of the beast. And you'll notice on the notes there that there's this word, gematria. Now, gematria was an ancient form of, of assigning significance to the sum of letters in a word system. So in Greek, Hebrew, and Roman, there are not numeric symbols for numbers. Everything would have been tied to the letter system. And so each letter would represent a number. Now, when you, when you take and you add these numbers up to names, and this is where uh, numerology kind of gets a kind of a kind of a grasp. And if you don't know what numerology is, I, I would not bite into that um, all that much. There was a, a book a long time ago called The Bible Code. It is an overexpression of this idea of gematria. So um, the Bible has so much more in store inside its pages, and, and it says so much more to you than giving you um, these gematria codes. Though, that said, the writers used gematria because it was part of their culture. And so, like in instances like this, we need to know what it means and how to understand it because, um, because John was using it to tell his churches something. Now, over and opposed to that, it, it, we don't need to look at every single letter of the Bible to identify a number, to identify a name, to identify written, hidden messages in the Bible. If we spend our entire lives reading and studying Scripture just to understand what the apostles and what the writers of the Old Testament wanted to say to us, we will have unearthed and, un, un, and uh, discovered so many good and amazing truths that um, really we don't need to know <laughs> if there is other hidden messages, I guess, inside the, the Scripture because God says it plainly to us in the words. So um, that's just kind of, I, I, I'm getting on a lot of soapboxes here today, so I'm, I apologize about that. So gematria is just what we're seeing here when we're looking at the number 666. So 
some word, some name, some letters are going to add up to this amount. And John tells us to have wisdom and to see and to understand. Now, first thing that we need to, to realize is that continuing in the theme of parody, the number 666 is first and foremost a parody of perfection or of perfect completion, I should say it that way, and the number 777. So some people say that it's the number of man, where uh, 777 is the, the number for divine. Really, the number 7 is a number of completion. And so you see 666 is really a parody of, uh, of completion and perfection. And honestly, if you uh, take the Greek letters of Jesus, or and honestly, I can't remember if it's a Greek or Hebrew, but it's if you take the Greek or Hebrew letters of Jesus and you add them up, they add up to 888, which was the kind of like super perfection. So just just kind of a fun fact. But um, and so we see this parody of 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 perfection. And so it represents imperfection. Now, a lot of scholars believe and there's been a lot of study of this, a lot of, of time and energy and really, really smart people have 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 really um played this out and figured this out. Most scholars have put the name Kaiser Nero or Caesar Nero, which is Greek. Kaiser Nero or Kaiser Neron is Greek. And, and so translated into Hebrew, if you take and you put it into the, to the formula for the letters that these represent and you add them up, it comes to the number 666. 666. And so a lot of scholars believe that when John was writing this book, he was referencing Nero. Now, there's a lot of good evidence for that. There's a lot, again, I already told you the story of, of the man who, who had the wound on his head and yet um, was coming back to life. That was a story that was uh, a proponent. It was, um, pro it was told to be about Nero at the time. And so that is, it all kind of plays into why scholars think that John was referring to Nero um, back in the, the first century. But the reality is there were a lot of emperors that their numbers added up to 666. If you take and you look at their Greek and their Hebrew names and the way they translate into Hebrew. And so John could be referencing any of the imperial figures at the time in and it's particularly important for John that, that it is someone who claims divine privilege. So the emperors all had some form of emperor worship or divine worship. And, and a lot of the emperors, the older emperors, did not claim that until after they were dead. And it was not said about them until after they were dead. But, but about the time of Nero, it became the practice to, um, to worship the emperor's divine while they were still alive. And so that's why you, you get John addressing all of these different uh, imperial cults and imperial palaces and temples popping up all around the Roman Empire and all around Palestine and Asia Minor at this time. So uh, that is kind of my, my thoughts on, why, on, on what the mark of the beast is and what the beasts are. Um, there, there's a lot of talk about what they were in history and what they were to John. And, and yet, John's heart and John's thrust of this section is that is that his churches and that we would recognize evil when it's around us, that we'd recognize the systems and the the compulsion and the um, 
and the temptation to give in and to give up our witness and to, to give up our loyalty and our faithfulness to Jesus. Why? Because it is what culture does. It is what systems that are led by broken individuals who have no desire for God, it's what they do. It's, it's kind of the def default. And so John wants his churches and he wants us to be aware of those things. And so the question that I want to leave us with as I close today, as we finish looking at this chapter, and we're going to get into some more symbolism and more reasons why we think that, that John was referring a lot to the Roman Empire at the time. It, it, it later on in the chap, it, later on in the book, but I want to leave us with this, and because this is these are the questions that I think John is really asking: is is where do we compromise what we know to be right? Where we know Jesus asks us to do something, where do we compromise? Where we know what it means to be faithful to God, that, that's loving God and loving other people, where do we compromise that? Where do we compromise and, and, and give up the moral ethic that God calls us to so that we can advance in, you name it, excuse me. And why do we justify the compromise. And so the question that I'm asking is, is what reasons do we decide, why do we decide to compromise in those situations? So here's a simple example. It, it was a popular thing when I was in college to download music from a, a popular site at the time. It was called Napster. People would digitize their music files, and this was before like Spotify and all that, it was popular to digitize the files and then share them amidst all the different users of Napster. Technically, and, and this is why you see all of the different piracy warnings on movies and all the different piracy thing, uh, things on music, because at the time, like that was a thing that, that was happening. And so when I was in college, that was the thing to do. And what I didn't realize is that I was actually stealing in that moment. So I, I, I'll be honest, I was, I was on Napster for a while, and, and my roommate got tired of me downloading music that I liked. So, But um, it was a moment where I compromised what I knew to be something that was wrong. And so in that moment, I compromised. Why did I compromise? I was a poor college student, and I liked music. Uh, it was, so it was economically advantageous. And so... Everything that we do, where we kind of slight, um, where we're, and, and, and you, you can, we can have a conversation about whether that was right or wrong or what, whatnot. But to seriously, prayerfully consider the things that we do in our lives and why we do them. And do they draw us closer to Jesus or do they pull us away from Jesus? And so John wants us to be aware of the decisions that we make, of, of the things that we do. And, and are we by giving into or partaking in uh, something in our culture, are we being pulled away from God? Now, you can say this gets into the legalism type of thing, and you know what? Sometimes it does. Some people do bite into the legalistic side of this. Some people don't. Some people are more free, and, and this, is, this is the conversation that I think John wants us to have, is what is right and what is wrong in the economy of God and why would we, and what are the things that we see as most valuable that we are willing to compromise 
would we stand in the place of, of those, if it ever came down to it, would we worship idols or would we give up our faith so that we could make money? Would we, um, I, I mean, think about the progression, and I don't know that it was always right, and I love having the convenience of things being open on Sundays as much as the next person, but is that a compromise that's pulling people away from God, or is it something that is just kind of a legalistic thing that it was an era of a bygone past that we just want to hold on to? That Those are things that we have to wrestle with. And so I don't have right or wrong answers for what exactly those compromises are. And, and, and so I was even reading a, a study by uh, N.T. Wright on this, and he was saying, like, what, what are the questions of our time that, that can lead us into compromise, where we, where we bite into sacrificing our faithfulness to Jesus for the sake of something? So just something for us to wrestle through as we think about this. Um, and, and where are those places that we, we will sacrifice our faith so that we can have economic status, fame, popularity, you name it. So, all right, guys, I realize that's a lot of heady and really complicated imagery to, 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 to think through. And I hope that it was clear. I hope I made it clear. The, the reason that, that you kind of heard me go back and forth on some of the things that I was talking about, like, is it Nero? Is it not Nero? Is it the Roman Empire? Is it a parody of Jesus? Is it a parody of the Spirit? It, the reality is, is that, that we're putting together, based off the evidence that we have, the different illusions and the different things that we have. So we're trying to make the best guesses as we can as to what these things are. But when we make those guesses and when we think about those things, a lot of times the pieces come together and it makes sense. So that's why I believe that, that it is what it is. Um, if you have different thoughts and opinions on that, I love having conversations about this stuff. I love thinking about it. I love going, yeah, that might be it. That might not be it. My heart is, is getting to the heart of what John is saying to his churches because I believe that Jesus has a message for us in the book of Revelation. And, and, and less... For me, it's less important to figure out how all these things play out so that we can know the future. I don't think that's John's heart, and I don't, I, that's not my heart in explaining this, this, this passage. John didn't give us a book so that we can know the future outside of the truth that Jesus wins. But what John does give us is the compelling and the, um, and the, the really heart-rending call to be faithful to Jesus amidst a culture that is wanting to pull us away. And so that's my heart in this. Can we recognize those places that it does it? And will we stay faithful? And if not, where are the places that we're not staying faithful so that we can repent and turn back to Jesus? All right, guys, uh, th I really appreciate you joining, and I pray that you have uh, a, a great uh, weekend as you process through this. And as this stuff sits on your minds, I pray that the Spirit would lead you and guide you, that He would convict you in certain areas, that you would repent, and that you would find new life and new hope in trusting Jesus with all of these different areas of your life. All right, guys, I'll see you next week.